heading home here in just a couple of weeks. Uh, for those of you who don't know Pastor Tom and Deb, they were uh, part of our, our pastoral team at the church, um, but they're also retired, and what they're doing in their retirement is traveling, and they've been gone for almost two months now. Uh, and as Deb had said to me, I, I don't really want to retire because I feel like God's not done with me, and I was, gave a hearty amen to that because God's never done with us, Amen. And, uh, and so what they're doing is as they travel, they're visiting churches and pastors that they have a relationship with to just bring encouragement, uh, to just love on them. They've, they've been taking pastors and their families out to dinner. And this last week, they've been in Missouri with a couple named Tony and Lori Johnson, who uh, friends of ours, we knew them when they were in college. And in fact, they used to be a part of the pastoral team here at Glendora Foursquare Church a number of years ago. They're pastoring in Missouri. Um, but Lori just found out recently that she has breast cancer. And, uh, and Tom and Deb had already planned their trip, and it just so happened that they ended up at their church the week that Lori started chemotherapy. And so they were able to be there with her and their family. They prepared uh, about a month's worth of meals that they froze and uh, just got to love on them. And so God is good. Amen. We believe he's the healer, but he's also compassionate, and he brings people into our lives at just the right moment. And so what I'd like to do this morning, we're going to pray for Tom and Deb and for Tony and Lori, for their family, for their church, and, and most, most importantly, for healing for Lori. Could we just do that? Father God, this morning, we're thankful, God, that you are God who sees all. There's nothing that is hidden from you in all of creation. And God, that this diagnosis didn't come as a surprise to you, and Lord, that it's not outside of your scope or your ability to bring absolute and total healing to Lori. And so God, this morning we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would cleanse her body of every cancer cell, that you would... Lord, that you would completely remove, and even as we have seen within our church and the testimonies, Lord, of cancer being healed at Thrive Church, God, that you would blow those cancer cells up, that you would completely remove them, Father God. We pray for, for her faith to rise, for Tony's faith to rise, God, for their congregation, that there would be a mighty move of your spirit in that place, and God, that that church would be an epicenter of healing in that community, Lord, as the testimony of Lori's healing, Lord, spreads throughout that community. We pray for strength in her body, Lord. We pray over their family for encouragement, God. Thank you that there are people like Tom and Deb, but even others, Lord, who will come alongside of them and support and encourage them during this season. Lord, we pray for Tom and Deb as they start heading back to California for safe travel, Lord, for protection over their vehicle, Lord, and over their health. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that there's an extension of Thrive Church it's been all over the country just loving on people, and so uh, we're so thankful for Tom and Deb, but honestly, we're excited to have them back, right? Well, we're in the middle of a series called The Prosperous Soul, The Prosperous Soul. We've been talking about, uh, out of uh, 3 John verse 2, the statement that, that John makes about our souls prospering, in fact, in writing to Gaius, he says these words, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Anyone here this morning want to prosper in all things? Okay, some of you aren't sure. I'm going to give you a cue. When I say if you want to prosper, just raise your hand, everyone, right? I, I believe that every one of us has a desire to prosper. There's none of us who, who would just say, well, I just kind of want to struggle and not have enough, right? It just it doesn't work that way. 
that we want to prosper in all things and be in health. But, but the way that John writes this, he says, just as your soul prospers, and he kind of reverses the language. And what he's saying is, as your soul prospers, you will prosper in all things and be in health. Your, your soul is designed to prosper, and as it does, your life will prosper. I mentioned when I started this series that word prosper or prosperity kind of has a bad rap in the church, especially here in America. Uh, prosperity gospel that just says, hey, if you just do all the right things, God's going to give you, like he's just going to bless you with more and more and more. Now, we believe at a core that, that there's some, some truth to that, but we are, we, are not in, we are not in any place whatsoever to be able to arm twist God and make him do what we want to do. Right, and so what? As I talk about prosperity and prospering, that's that's not the direction. It's it's more of that that inner life that just starts overflowing. Even the graphic, you see that that water just kind of splashing. That there's just this kind of life that takes place inside of us and overflows. And so we talked about and asked the question, "What is the soul?" and and, and, and what's the role of the soul? And we, we've heard the word soul around us. We, we're familiar with it. But it's one of those words that I, I believe in, in the modern church, we don't have a, a firm understanding or a firm grasp on it. Uh, John Ortberg writes this in his book, Soul Keeping. The soul is the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. It is something like a program that runs a computer. And you don't usually notice it unless it messes up. The soul is the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. What are the parts? Parts are my, my thinking, my intellect, my mind. The parts are my emotion, my feelings, my memories, my past. The part is my will, my desire to do things, and my ability to actually carry those things out. All of those things and even more, the part of that is my body, is my physical being. That, that your body is important to God. It's not just a vessel holding your spirit until you get taken home to be with Jesus. That your body is important to the Lord. He wouldn't have fashioned Adam out of the, the dirt, out of the soil of the earth, and then breathed life into him if, if the body wasn't important. That all of these pieces being integrated and coming together create the soul. It is the center of our lives. It is your being. It is your yourself. We talked about last week the fact that the soul is needy. You have a needy soul, and not in a whiny, needy way, but in a you-need-to-live kind of way. In the same way that your body has needs, if you hold your breath for more than a minute, your body's going to let you know it's time to get some oxygen in here. You can't just hold your breath indefinitely, right? And so you need to breathe. You need to eat. You need to sleep. And there's indicators in your life when you don't do those things that, that you need to go and take care of those needs. For me lately, it's become every time I go to a movie, the, the lights dim and it's air conditioned and it's comfortable, all of a sudden my eyes are closed and I take an, an expensive nap. Um, <laughs> my body's going, it's time to rest. Your soul is no different. Your soul is no different. Your soul has needs, and those needs shouldn't be ignored. And eventually, if they're ignored, you'll recognize there's unhealth that starts emerging in our lives. 
The psalmist writes this in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? You hear that desperate cry, God, I need you. Our souls have been designed by God with need. This morning, I want to talk about your soul needs a keeper. Your soul needs a keeper. Last week, we talked about your soul needs to know God and be known by God. This morning, we're going to focus on the fact that your soul needs a keeper. When I was in high school, my parents bought a house. And this particular house, they bought on auction and it had been standing empty for over six months. And uh, it, it was a, a larger home, and, uh, and they got it inexpensively because of the condition that it was in. And it had a really nice uh, backyard, a large backyard, a swimming pool. A, it had a place with like a fireplace and a, and, and a built-in barbecue. Um, but, but much of the yard was hidden from us when we bought the house because after six months, it was so overgrown we couldn't even tell what was back there. It was just like the, the jungle had taken over. And so we bought this house. And of course, the first priority was just to get into the house and clean the inside of the house. And so it was shampooing carpets and painting uh, before we, and getting rid of the smell, right? Six months of standing empty. Houses don't smell that good. And so we had to do that part. And once we got moved in, we turned our attention to the yard. And can I just tell you, it was not a Saturday project, it was months of work. What we discovered pretty quickly is that this yard had, there had a lot of care had been put into this yard and a lot of design had been put into this yard. And, uh, and, and the top, the house was built on a hill and at the top of the, 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 the property was a, a nine-foot waterfall that poured down and, and gushed down into a large pond. And then that pond spilled over into a smaller pond that spilled over into a, a little, like, little creek that then spilled into a final pond. When we first looked at the backyard, we didn't even know any of those things existed. It was so overgrown. And so it was this discovery process as we got in there and ripped everything out and started removing truckloads of overgrowth that we started making these discoveries, little, little bridge that went over the creek. And the, the, the pool was so green, you could have just walked across it. Um, it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty nasty. When it was all done, though, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful place to hang out. I wish I actually had a picture of it. I don't have any photos of that backyard, but I, I was in high school and my house was the place where everyone came to hang out because it was just a great space for entertaining and, and hanging out. Just like that yard, left unchecked, your inner, the inner parts of your life will grow out of control. And even the things that God has designed to be beautiful and refreshing will become hidden and covered. Your life needs a keeper in the same way that a garden needs someone to keep it. There has to be a gardener. See, the thoughts and the emotions and the desires that do not belong will start to take root. They will start to take root and, and they will, will spread. I mean, if you've ever had weeds in your lawn, you know what I'm talking about, right? You just, they, they, it starts with one dandelion and the next thing you know, there's a sea of yellow and, and you're going, I have, to, I have to work to get this stuff out. 
I have to make sure that I'm caring for this lawn. I'm caring for my yard to make sure that nothing that's not supposed to be there takes a hold. But this is nothing new. In the Bible, we go back way to Genesis chapter 4, and we discover that this process of things taking hold in our lives is not new in in our culture or, or in this time period, but it started right at the beginning. If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 4, in fact, uh, we're going to be in in Genesis, if you want to kind of put your finger in a couple of places, um, I try not to give more than two at a time, but, but I'll give you all four places that we're going to be. We're going to start in Genesis, we're going to jump to Matthew, then we're going to go back to Proverbs, and we're going to end in Philippians. You got that? We're just going to cover the whole of Scripture this morning, um, which I believe is important, because God wouldn't address this throughout Scripture if it wasn't important to us. Amen? So let's turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. It says this in verse 4, And Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Let me stop there. Anyone here suffer with that same condition? Like people, like if you're feeling it, people know that you're feeling it because it's just right here, right? I'm, I'm that way. My wife just looks at me and she's like, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. She's like, no, no, your face is like screaming at me. Something is wrong. Cain, Cain struggled with that. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? See, from the very beginning, God shows us that we have a need to keep watch over our souls. See, both brothers bring an offering to the Lord. Cain is a farmer, and so he brings part of his crop, part of this grain, and he brings it to the Lord. Abel brings from his flocks. He's a shepherd, and he he brings these offerings before the Lord. Now, we don't know from Scripture exactly what it was about Cain's offering that was accept, unacceptable on a practical level, on a pragmatic level. We don't know what the condition, if there's something faulty with the, the offering itself, but really, that's the, not really the issue. The real issue is a, a, it's a heart issue. See, Cain had a heart problem, and even though he went through the motions of bringing something to God, he did it half-heartedly. He did it in a way that even though the outward expression seemed okay, inwardly there had, something had taken root in Cain's life that even though he went through the process, God knew that it wasn't done with a whole heart, that it wasn't done with a healthy heart. And so that made Cain's offering unacceptable to God. And, and we could say and kind of argue, well, that's kind of, kind of harsh, isn't it? Isn't it harsh that God would reject one brother but receive the other, and it's a part of God's justice. His character is he, he's, he can't let us, he can't allow us to get away with things that are done 
half-heartedly. He, he can't. It's not loving for him to let us do things that are not done from the heart, with, through the right motivation. See, Cain had a heart problem. We know when someone's doing something half-heartedly, right? As parents, for the parents in the room, and you asking your kids to do a chore, take out the garbage, clean the bathroom, and they do it, right? <laughs> but not wholeheartedly, which usually involves with go back and do it again, right? Go back and do it again because you didn't do it right because your heart wasn't in it. You weren't paying attention now, now, does your heart need to be in doing chores? Yeah, because the Bible says everything your hands to do, do as unto the Lord. Everything means everything. Everything. Well, as we get older, we, we learn those bad habits and they stick with us. We get better at hiding it. But how many in the workplace do the bare minimum? Or we get into school, I know there's a number of teachers in the room, right? And you get a homework assignment turned in or a paper that's been written, and that student didn't do their very best. And I know as a, as a teacher, as an educator, your heart breaks knowing that the student, that this kid is, is, the potential is there for more, to do better. But because their motivation is lacking, because their heart is lacking, they're not bringing to the forefront the best of what they have to do. God is deserving of the very best of us. He's deserving of the absolute best we have to bring. And it's not about the substance. It's about the heart. It's not about the substance. It's about the heart. Jesus illustrates this with the widow who brings the one coin and drops it in the offering. And he says that widow's, that widow's might, that, that little coin is of greater value than those who were dropping bags of money. Why? Because the condition of her heart before the Lord was pure. Her soul was prospering. Even though outwardly the, the culture would have said she's not prospering. Inwardly, because of the relationship which she had with God. See, our, our soul is the part of us that communes with God, that's present with God. And because her soul was prospering, the very bit that she came, came out of the depth of her heart. And God received that gladly. God is deserving the very best we have to offer. The Bible talks about sowing and reaping. That if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. But if we sow abundantly into his kingdom and into our relationship with him, that we will reap a great harvest. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. It's amazing to me in this moment that God, as he's dialoguing with Cain, gives an opportunity for him to correct himself. He doesn't write him off. And, and there's an, a wrong way of thinking about God that I believe has made its way into the church. That it's about my my will, that I will myself to do the right thing so that I can be accepted by God. But the reality is it's the exact opposite, that God is the one who initiates. It's Him who extends Himself to us, and we simply respond. And so this idea that I have to perform to please God, and God saying, no, you need to do the right things, but I'm going to tell you what the right things are. I'm going to map it out for you. And so even in a moment where, where Cain's offering hasn't been received by God, God doesn't re reject Cain. 
What he's saying is, I love you, and I want to map out for you and show you clearly what it is you need to do to correct what's going on on the inside. See, he's a God of grace and mercy. He is for us, not against us, even as we heard during worship this morning. He's for us, not against us, but he won't do it for us. He says it regarding sin, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It desires to have you. See, Satan is an opportunist. He's looking for an opportunity. He's crouching at the door, waiting for the opportunity that he can, like a roaring lion, seize you with sin, tempting you, putting things in front of you, a place where he can get a foothold. And I heard someone once say that he finds a foothold and that becomes a stronghold and the stronghold becomes a chokehold. And it starts with that little place, that little thing that seems so insignificant. But a soul that is not healthy will not recognize the sin crouching at the door. The sin is crouching at a door. Satan is looking for an opportunity to dominate your life to ch- and to choke out and silence the voice of God. Sin is looking for the opportunity to choke out and silence the voice of God. And the most important thing for us in our lives is to hear and obey the voice of God. It's critical for us. And this is an ongoing battle. Today I will fight that battle. Tomorrow I will fight that battle. And for the rest of my life and for the rest of your life, you will fight that battle. But these words that God says, you must rule over it. There's both hope and hard work. There's hope and hard work. If God says you can do something, guess what? You can do it. If God says you must rule over this sin, what he's saying is you you have the ability in him to rule over it. But you have to do it. So let me ask this. Who must rule over it? You. Who? It's you. He will partner with you. In fact, he's given us the tools and the weapons and the wisdom and the power we need to overcome. The Bible says that that God has given us everything we need to live godly lives. Everything. Nothing is lacking. But it's up to us to engage with those things. To embrace them, to make them a part of our lives. He won't do it for you, but he will walk in partnership with you. In fact, he can't do it for you. Because then my free will goes out the window and I no longer have a relationship. And that relationship is so critical to me walking with the Lord. You must rule over it. You are the keeper of your soul. You are the keeper of your soul. Your soul needs someone to rule over the sin, over the brokenness, over the things that want to make their way in. Needs someone, and that someone is you. That someone is you. Cain's response when Jesus, I mean, when God comes looking for Abel and says, Where's your brother? And his response, and this is quoted inside and outside of the church Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is no and yes. It's both. No first. Because what God is saying, You are your keeper. 
You are your keeper. You're, you're supposed to keep watch over your own soul. You must rule over it. See, his response is revealing. It's revealing even of ourselves. See, we love to blame. It's someone else's fault. Someone else did it. They did it. Their mistake. I'm in this predicament. I'm in this situation because of them. Rather than taking responsibility. See, here Cain is lacking self-awareness. Knowing what he's just done and just like his parents, hiding. Hiding the truth of what he's done. Knowing that God knows. Knowing that God knows. See, we have to move away from blame and looking at others and, and saying, well, you're responsible for my life and you have to do it for me. It's saying, God, what are you calling me to do? I am my keeper. And so, no, I'm not my, keep, my brother's keeper in, in, in regards to being the primary keeper of someone else's soul. But what happens is, is when I am taking care of my own soul, when I am prospering in my soul, there will be this part of me now that wants to look out for those around me. This idea that somehow I'm not responsible for me, but you are. We never mature. Parents, right? I look to my parents. It's my parents' job or it's my spouse's job or it's my friend's job. It's my pastor's job or it's my church's job. See, we often confuse accountability with responsibility. And I have people coming to me constantly, Pastor, would you hold me accountable? And you know what I've started saying? No. Not in the way that you're asking, because what you're asking me to do is do the hard work for you, and I can't. I can't want something more for you than you want it for yourself. That's not accountability. Now, if you're stepping up in responsibility, absolutely. Because out of the, what God is doing in my life, and because we're the body of Christ and we're, we're knit together, I want to stand with you. But I can't do it for you any more than God can do it for you. And so we, we need to stop confusing responsibility and accountability. When your soul is healthy, we're in a place to rightly care for those around us, to love and encourage and extend grace. God's designed us for community and relationship, but it has to be healthy community and healthy relationship. So how do we tend to that? What does that look like? Jesus gives us an answer in Matthew chapter 13. So if you want to turn to Matthew 13, the words are on the screen as well. Verse 2 says this, Such large, large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And while all the people stood on shore, then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some of it fell along the path. And the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow and then the sun came up and the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root, just like my garden over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Remember I said that God's the way God moves doesn't always make sense to us, right? When those moments where there's more month than money, yet somehow 
everything gets taken care of. God is not subject to the laws and the rules and the conditions of this world. Jesus goes on in verse 19 to explain what he had just said, because of course the response is, uh, we don't get it. Uh, What do you mean? What are you trying to say? So Jesus unpacks it for them. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what was sown in their heart. Everyone say heart. The seed is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. That the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world or, or even more importantly, the kingdom of me. See, we, we're born into a, a, a way of thinking, a sinful way of thinking that says your life is all about you. And you need to establish and build your kingdom. You remember those shirts I used to say, right? He dies with the most toys wins, Right? I mean, it's just that overt. It's that blatant. He who dies with the most toys dies. Right? But we get so focused on building our kingdoms and and, and worshiping self and, 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 and investing in us. And God says, no, no, my kingdom is, is bigger than that. Jesus, in fact, the book of Matthew, this is a major theme for Matthew. I'm going to talk a lot about the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to understand that there's another way of thinking, another kingdom that we belong to, that we are citizens of heaven when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we're no longer citizens of this world, but we're now a part of the kingdom of God. Why is this important? Because nothing sown into the kingdom of me will prosper, ever. Nothing. Now, God is a gracious and loving God, and the Bible says that he causes it to rain on the wicked and on the righteous, right? Well, why, why do bad people have lots of money? We somehow think that having lots of money is a blessing. It's not about money. Or that person has lots of possessions. It's not about possessions. That person is so famous. It's not about fame. That's the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom of me. And so Jesus says, in order for us to prosper, we need to be sown into the kingdom of God. We need to understand that the kingdom of God is like these four soils. And so he unpacks it a little bit. He says the the path, you ever walked on a hiking path? And, and, and it's a place where the, the, the soil and the dirt has been packed down so much so that the grass won't even grow there anymore. That nothing can take root. It's the part of our lives that are hardened. It's the parts of our lives and our soul that have been trodden on either by others or because of our own selfishness and arrogance. 
And we, we tamp down those places so when the, the word of God is presented to us, there's no place for it to even sink in. And, and so the enemy, the picture of that bird coming and steals and robs us of the word of God. Don't miss the importance. By the way, this, this, I'm doing a very small treatment of this passage. This is a whole sermon series in and of itself. But I'm trying to paint a picture for us that the enemy... His goal is to steal the word of God. A lot of people would say this passage is about that moment of salvation, but it's so much more. See, because I need the word of God when I come to salvation, when I say yes to Jesus. And then I need the word of God every moment of every day for the rest of my life. That it needs to be our highest priority that the voice of God drowns out every other voice in our hearts and in our minds. And there's a lot of voices, aren't there? Amen? Hello? Some of you got it, yeah. There's a lot of voices. Voices of our past, voices of the culture, my own voice, right? The voice of God needs to be heard. The word of God needs to be heard. And the enemy wants to snatch it away. And so when we're hardened and there's hard places in our lives and in our soul, God's word will not penetrate and take root. He talks about the rocky places. There's a bit of soil, but, but it's shallow, There's no maturity and there's no depth. And so there's no place for the deeper things of God. And I believe that a lot of Christians in the church today live in this rocky place. That the word of God keeps taking root and then withering and taking root and withering. Pete Scazzarian talking about emotionally healthy spirituality had a guy come in his church come to him and said, Pastor, I feel like I'm a, a I've known Jesus for 20 years, but I feel like I'm a one-year-old Christian 20 times over, not a 20-year-old believer. The rocky places, those places where I want to believe. And in fact, he says that there's just this exuberance. Receive it with joy. Yes. Amen, pastor. Preach it. I will love that worship song. But the minute persecution comes, we shy back. And what was thriving for a moment withers and dies. Indicative of a soul that has been cluttered with other things. There was a couple in our church up in Alaska who gave their lives to the Lord, had never been in church their whole lives. In fact, my friend Dan had said to me, he's like, I've been in church twice, once for a funeral and then the day I got married. And that was it. Ended up being a part of our congregation. There were our neighbors and gave their lives to the Lord. And, and they were all in, all in. Didn't take just but a few weeks that they came to us and they said, Pastor Barry and Megan, we're struggling. And we're like, well, let's talk about it. And they said, we, we went to our family. We had a family gathering and, um, and we told them we'd started going to church and they started kind of making fun of us. And, and before where they would share jokes and we would laugh, now they were like, oh, we can't say that around you anymore. And they started feeling that pressure that persecution, that's, that's what it is. And, it, and it's not even because of people, it's the enemy that wants to bring that pressure. And they had to make a choice. And I was so thankful that we were able to disciple them through that process. But if there's rocks in your soil, when that kind of opposition comes in even bigger things than that, it'll just be easy to walk away. And you know what ends up happening is we end up in this place of guilt and shame. Because that's, that's what the enemy wants to do. Oh, you say you're a Christian, but look at what you just did. 
You go to church on Sunday, but I know what you do on Monday. God knows as well, but he doesn't shame us. He's like, just like with Cain, and he comes and he says, hey, I love you. This is not what I want for your life, but let me show you the way to go. Where the enemy brings shame, and he says, no, no, distance yourself. You cannot go to God. You need to hide these things from God, just like Adam and Eve did, just like Cain did, somehow thinking that God doesn't know, right? And what once had life and brought joy now dies. And we repeat that process over and over and over. And let's just be frank about it. It's exhausting. Am I right? It's exhausting. God's called us to thrive, not survive. I heard that somewhere once. (laughs) The thorny ground. Well, can ground be thorny? No. What he's saying is that there is soil there. There's place to grow, but weeds had found their way in. And the weeds had taken root and were robbing the soil of all of the nutrients. And so these thorns and these thistles had grown up and taken root. See, other things had found a place. And he tells us what they are. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. I want to ask you to raise your hand. Because I know that every one of us have worries in this life and have been deceived by wealth. Every one of us at some point. See, this world tries to offer something, but it has nothing to offer. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we can discern what the will of God is, to hear his voice. But he precedes that with saying, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Because the pattern of this world is devoid of the voice of God. And so we have to surrender every part of our lives and say, God, I need to root out the weeds that have taken place, that have taken root in my life, so that the seed has a place to go. See, this is a daily process. The word of God, he's wanting to speak his word into our lives every day through, through the reading of his word. Easiest place to get it right here. But he will speak to you. His voice will be present in your life if you listen He will speak to you through worship. He will speak to you through dreams and through visions. He will speak to you through the voice of other people. He wants to speak to you. We just have to put ourselves in a place where we're listening and that the soil of our soul is ready to receive and not to get trapped and and wrapped up in the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And then Jesus finishes and he says, there's this good soil. There's good soil. See, it's the person who hears and understands and receives. And hearing and obeying the voice of God, as I already said, is the most important thing for us. Absolutely the most important thing. We're going to go back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27. Solomon writing this, and he says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my word. Do not let them out of your sight and keep them in your heart. Say heart. Say heart. Heart. Don't say heart half-heartedly, right? (laughs) For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. 
Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Be careful. Uh, give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Whose job is it to keep your foot from evil? It's yours. It's yours. God's instruction to us. Pay attention. Turn your ear. Don't ignore this. Church, this is important. Keep them in your heart. Keep them at the center of your being. The Bible, by the way, uses the word heart and soul in some places interchangeably, and in other places it's not interchangeable. And I don't want to unpack that any further. Just know that in this, this passage, in the way that it's written and translated, it can be heart or soul that there is the same thing. He's talking about the inner self, the inner being. There are life and health to your whole body. So he says, above all else, above all else, this is the most important thing. There's nothing more important than this. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Don't neglect what's going on inside. Don't, don't turn a blind eye to it or, or just say, I'm okay. That's good enough. What does God say? What's God's evaluation? And he gives some practical things. Turn your eyes away. Don't let your, your feet go where they're not supposed to go. Don't let perverse talk come out of your lips. I won't ask if anyone struggles with that. What's the metric for that? We're going to talk about and we'll close it in, with that in, in Ephesians, I mean in Philippians. Guard, protect Watch over, prevent anything from coming in that's not supposed to be in. Guard. You've probably noticed on the road that there's guardrails. When we drove up to camp this week, up to Cedar Crest, there's parts of that road going up to 330 where there's some pretty big cliffs. And I'm so thankful that there's guardrails. See, on a simple road, they just use lines. They paint lines, right? And every road has lines. But, but on a road that's just flat and even and there's no drop-off, the lines are good enough. But when things get a little more precarious, maybe on a highway where there's multiple lanes of traffic moving at a high rate of speed in opposite directions, now we have a metal barrier or, or there's a, in some highways there's just a big grassy area with a hedge between it. Or maybe the K-rails, the concrete K-rails. See, as the, as the danger increases, the guardrails have to increase. And then you get up onto a mountain road where there's a cliff and now it's not just a K-rail it's, it's one of those really hefty metal barriers or even a wall that's been built. See, the, the more the danger increases, the more the guardrail has to increase. And what God's saying to us is in your life, recognize the dangerous areas. Recognize the places of struggle. Recognize the places where there's been patterns of brokenness. And do the work of establishing guardrails. This is that accountability responsibility conversation. It's my responsibility to recognize that there's places of weakness and brokenness and temptation in my life. Things that are dangerous, they're places where the enemy can get a foothold because sin is crouching at my door. And those are the places where I have to say, I need to establish guardrails. See, Satan's not going to tempt you with things that you don't care about. Right? 
He's not going to waste his time. He's an opportunist. And so he's going to figure out waiting and listening and observing and figures out what is it that trips you up the most. And that's where he's going to focus his attack. And so we have to put up guardrails. We have to guard our hearts. And as we take that responsibility, I can now come to my brothers or, or come to my spouse or come to my friend and say, would you hold me in this, in this accountable in a place where I've recognized weakness and here's the guardrails I'm establishing and now would you stand with me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why is this important? Because Solomon says everything you do flows from this. Everything. Everything. That there's nothing that you do in your life that doesn't flow out of your heart. That everything is motivated somewhere by something. It's like a spring that feeds a river. If there's contamination at the, at the spring, there's contamination in the entire river, right? If there's contamination at the spring, everything downstream will be contaminated. If there's contamination in my heart, there will be contamination in everything I do. So God says, go to the source, figure out what's going on inside of your heart, inside of your soul, encompassing your thinking, your emotions, your physical body, your appetites, and deal with those things at the source. It was a few years ago in Flint, Michigan, they discovered after switching the, the source of that city's water from Lake Erie to the Flint River, that there were dangerously high levels of lead in the water. And hundreds and thousands of people got lead poisoning because of that. And to this day, I think there's 2012 that happened. To this day, the people in Flint, Michigan have to bottle, drink bottled water. They cannot use the water that comes out of the tap. And they said it's going to take until 2020 to correct the problem. It took people getting sick for them to discover that something was wrong. The places in your life that are sick are indicative of things in your heart that are wrong. And don't just ignore it and think like, oh, it's okay. You are the keeper of your soul. God has given you the wisdom and the tools you need to address those things. So how? Philippians 4, and we'll close with this. Philippians 4, verse 8 through 9. Finally, brothers... And sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. It's the whatever test. How do you know? Does it stand up to the whatever test? Do my words and do my actions and my thoughts, right? Because that's, that's the thing that no one can see. It's just me and my thinking. Do my desires line up? Are they true? Are they true? Because if they're not true, they're a lie and there's only one liar. He's the father of lies. So are they true? Do they line up with God's word and God's heart? Are they noble? Are they nefarious? Are they underhanded and scheming? Am I looking out for others? Are they right? 
Of course, the opposite of that would be wrong. But right isn't just not wrong, it's also righteous. Aligned with God. Standing in right standing with Him. Are they pure? Are your thoughts, are your words, are your actions, are your motivations, are they pure and lovely? Not a word we use a lot, right? It's kind of a weak word. Oh, that's so lovely. But in the kingdom of God, loveliness, something that's, that's, that's beautiful to gaze on. It's holy. It's, it's set apart. Are, are your words lovely? Admirable. When people hear you speak and watch your life, are they, are they awestruck, not by you, but because of who God is in your life? Is it excellent? Is it the best you have to bring in every circumstance? Is it the best you have to bring or is it half-hearted? I heard someone say once in, in regards to church leadership, don't try and light a fire under people, light a fire in them. Why? Because if your heart is on fire for the things of God, we won't have to be, oh, we need teachers, oh, we need this. Right? Because my heart will just be in a place. And so the way I check that in my own heart is when I'm asked to do something, what's, what's the response of my heart? Am I ready to do it with excellence or is this just kind of this begrudging like, where are the other people that should do it? Or, or this one, whose job is this anyway? That's not the kingdom of God. Is it praiseworthy? It says if, if your thought life lines up with this, if you're thinking about these things, and, and then he says this, and you put it into practice, because it's not enough to just think about it. Come on. It's not enough to just think about it. See, the kingdom of God isn't about just talk. It's about action. And it's about us being the keeper of our souls and hearing from God and receiving from Him and tending to the soil of our lives. And then as we receive the Word of God, we do something. We respond and we act on it. And then the promise that Paul gives us is this, as we walk this out, that the peace of God will rest on your life. I want the peace of God to permeate every part of who I am. But it starts with me inspecting the well, inspecting the soil, inspecting my own heart to say, do I pass this test? Let's stand together as the worship team comes.